Welcome back, episode 108 of the Ranting Rangers podcast in partnership with Inside the Rink. I'm your host, Jacob Berkowitz, and I'm alongside my co-host, Brett. And in this week's episode, we have on former NHL referee and current ESPN rules analyst, Dave Jackson, a very insightful episode. But first, just want to let you all know to go to insidetherink.com slash ESPN to subscribe to ESPN Plus to watch games and more. And yeah, let's get to it. And we're back with former NHL referee and current ESPN rules analyst, Dave Jackson. Dave, how's it going? It's going well. It's going well. I was watching my, uh, you took me away from my Broncos game. It, uh, <laughs> they're, they're mounting a comeback. They're mounting a comeback. So I don't know what's going to happen. It's oh, late man. in the fourth quarter. So you guys can update me if you have the, I see you've got television on behind you. So maybe you can update me. I do. Brett has a TV in front of him also. It's on the, uh, it's on the Lions game right now. So okay. uh, yeah. Don't you have a TV in front of you also? I sometimes I do have a game on. There's not an important enough game to uh uh to to take my attention away from this interview at this point. But sometimes when it's just the two of us, I'll have the like the Sunday night game on in the background yeah. and in the middle of a conversation, I'll be like, oh <laughs> but uh not today. That's why it's on that TV back there. So getting into it, what made you want to become a referee? And were there any refs that you looked up to? Not initially. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a conscious career choice when I started. I was. I'm from Montreal. Uh, started playing hockey as you know, skating at two, playing hockey when I was probably six, and um, wanted to be a hockey player. I mean, I grew up in the '70s in Montreal with, you know, Guy Lafleur and Yvonne Cornway, Larry Robinson. Um, you just idolized the Montreal Canadiens, and uh, you wanted to. You wanted to be a pro hockey player, and I was about 14. Uh, a buddy said to me, because it didn't matter what level hockey you played. I was playing pretty good hockey, but you weren't on the ice seven days a week the way kids are today. We were on maybe three, four days a week. He said, why don't you referee hockey? You pick up some spare uh, spare cash in your, your free time. And at the time, I had a paper route, and I it was a morning paper. I had to have it delivered before 7 a.m., and I'm not much of a morning guy. So it was a nice uh, nice chance to uh, diversify my interests and go from delivering papers into refereeing hockey. So um, I did it, you know, parallel with playing uh, until I was about 17. Realized I was never going to make it as a, as a pro hockey player. And I just, uh, I was going to college at the time and I stayed refereeing. And I guess I was, I guess I was pretty good at it because uh, I moved pretty quickly uh, through junior hockey, through major junior Canadian college, and then uh, the NHL hired me on as a uh, trainee when I was 21 years old. So, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, when I was just a trainee, I mean, I looked up to the veteran NHL officials at the time, you know, Don Koharski's, Bill McCurry's, those kind of guys. And then I got to work with them later in my career, which was kind of neat. Wow, that's really cool. Um you know, throughout your career, you you presided over uh, you know a real difference in how the game was officiated uh, for you as a rep. What was the difference for you when it was more physical and lenient in the '90s versus the speedier, more stricter style that you ended up with? You know what? You're absolutely right. It's it's like a 180 degree difference. Um, when I started, my first seven years, when I went full time, my first NHL game was 1990. And I went full-time NHL in 93. And from 93 till 2000, it was just one referee, not two. So I was out there by myself in my, you know, late 20s, um, woefully unprepared a lot of nights. I mean, it's just, I mean, working in the NHL is not, I know armchair referees think it's pretty easy, but it's it's a, it's a tough gig. And um, back in those days, we didn't call a lot of hooking, holding, interference, I mean, we had, you know, that was sort of what you did. And unless the guy 
had a breakaway and went down. I mean, you, you, that was kind of the game guys locked on and they held guys. You almost had to run through a checklist of what does it tick all the boxes before you put your arm in the air. And you'd watch games that between two rivalry teams and even the announcers would be like, Oh, the referee's doing a great job. He's letting the players decide. He's not calling anything. And they, they, the hockey community, I mean, you just, you just didn't call penalties. You had to be, it had to be an obvious egregious penalty. And if you were a guy who went out there and called a lot of penalties, people kind of looked at you like, you know, you're, you're, you're ruining the game. Mm-hmm. And then we had that massive sea change in right after the lockout in 2005, yeah. where the powers that be, you know, uh, Stephen Walkham was referee in chief. You had, I think, um, Brennan Shanahan on the, on the players committee, uh, Gary Batman from the commissioner's office. They said, why are we not showcasing our best players? Why, why are we forcing our best players to fight through hooks and holds and tackles? Like, let's showcase our best players and let's let's penalize the players so that we can we can give fans the 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 goals, the exciting plays, and all that. And it was just like like I just said a second ago, it was, just, it was a sea change. It was complete change in in philosophy. It was like now late in the game, a guy gets a scoring chance and gets hooked. If you don't call a penalty, people, everybody expects you to call a penalty. Yeah, everyone's looking at you, going, "How come he didn't call that? It, it was a scoring chance." And so back in the day, you could get away with missing something, and they chalk it up as good judgment. Right. But you, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> you 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 can't miss uh, a scoring chance. You, I mean, you still don't want to call cheap penalties, but if it if it meets the standard, and everybody knows what the standard is, I'm saying everybody, all the referees know what the standard is. They they drill it into a training camp. They show you video after video. You get videos every week, and they show you what the standard is. And Gary Batman, Colin Campbell, Stephen Walkham, they'll tell you the referees at training camp. You guys know what the standard is. If it's a penalty that meets the standard, you guys call it. I don't care what time of game it is, how, what the score is in the game, you'll be supported. And, and that's the direction guys go with. So it drives me nuts when people tell me on Twitter that, you know, the league doesn't want this call or doesn't want that call. It's, it's not true. The league will support you if you call the standard. Interesting. And obviously, in hindsight, that was a good move to make, to make that change, too, because the league was in a rough spot at that point. Um, and the game yeah. got a lot faster and a lot more interesting at that point, too. Oh, the game is way faster now. Oh, way, way faster. faster. I mean, you can imagine how many more points Gretzky would have if he had those rules applied to him in the 80s. Oh I my God. think of Gretzky and Mario Lemieux, the two of them. I mean, like Mario Lemieux would have had 200 goals. It just yeah. he used to he used to go to the net with three guys on his back, and, <laughs> yeah. and, you know. And Gretzky, I mean, like his his point totals are mind numbing to begin with. Imagine if he was able to just skate freely and unimpeded. I mean, you're right; those two guys would just be <laughs> their numbers would be monumental. Absolutely. What was the most out of hand game that you officiated? Wow. Ah. Uh, there was a lot of games that were out of hand in my mind. Uh, you know, you always want to be perfect, but it, it, it's funny. Like when you're, um, when you're refereeing a hockey game, if you don't set a standard early in the hockey game, if you let little things go, it's like a snowball rolling downhill. And by the third period, if you haven't taken care of the small stuff, you're kind of standing out there on the ice, looking at the clock, saying to yourself, how to get into this? And you realize it's your own fault because you didn't set a standard. So I've had many games like that in my career where 
it's pretty much rodeo rules and you really can't all of a sudden just grab a regular hooking penalty or a regular holding penalty because everybody's going to look at you and go, well, you let 50 of those go already. So how did you call that one? So throughout my career, I've had many games like that that not necessarily the fans would see as out of control, but in internally in my mind, I realized that I'm not doing my job and not applying the standard. Um, you look at stuff fans would remember. I mean, I did the game in Vancouver in, I think it was 2014, where it was Vancouver, Calgary, and we dropped the puck and everybody fought one second in the game. Yeah. Uh, John Tortorella went after Bob Hartley between periods. I mean, that that was kind of cool. But I mean, for us, it wasn't really out of hand. We had five fights at once and we broke them up one at a time and threw the guys out of the game. And we, I think we had one penalty the rest of the game. So, wow. I mean, that, that looked like a really out of control game, but it, you know, at, you know, 1959 in the first period and the rest of the game, we had, you know, one penalty. Wow. That's crazy. Um, you know, something I've always wondered is, uh, you know, when they go to the Toronto and you're on the headset, um, you know, what is it? Is there a conversation going there? Are you giving insight on what you saw on the ice or are you just waiting to hear what they call? Is there any interaction there? What is that? Yeah. So I forget what year the uh, original video came in. I mean, it was early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And there's been so many different incarnations of, of how it's morphed and how it's changed. Like when it first came in, it was strictly as to whether the puck legally entered the net. Did it cross the goal line? Uh, was it kicked? Was it hit with a hand pass? Was it high sticked? And there wasn't even a situation room per se. Uh, there, there were guys in Toronto, but they didn't really communicate other than by like telephone. There was no headset, instant communication. So we had a video goal judge in every building who was ultimately tasked with making the decisions. Um, that morphed a little bit more, a little bit more. And we got the situation room who ultimately decided that instead of having at the time 30 video goal judges with different varying interpretations, why not centralize it with a group of five to six guys that have a tighter um, leeway as far as what their judgment is and all that. You get six guys making decisions versus 30. And then we got into offside challenges. We got into goalie interference challenges, um, uh, game stoppages where, you know, uh, miss game stoppage. So you miss a hand pass. You miss a high stick. Uh, maybe the puck goes off the netting, and those they, they kept cha- they kept changing. So uh, it used to be that for goalie interference, the guys on the ice would make the call on the video, and the situation room was there to support them. But then the same thought process took hold. There's 36 referees who all know what the rule is, but they have different standards of judgment. And the situation room said, well, we're five or six guys who see all the games. We should have that um, decision-making process to, to just narrow the, the scope of people's judgment. Right. So we said, okay, fine, which I'm actually okay with because you make the call on the ice and then you expected, you were expected to go over and overrule yourself or confirm your own call. And, and, you know, the, the fan would go, well, of course he's not going to overrule himself. And, like, guys would overrule themselves, but, but it's not really – the optics of it isn't good. Right. So, so they took it out of the referee's hands with the caveat that we now have a retired official in the situation room every night. And oh, okay. he's, an act, he's an active NHL supervisor. So he's a guy that would have been on the ice, now retired, now supervises, now mentors the guys. There's one of those guys in the room every night assisting in these calls. And – 
when it's a, a coach's challenge for a goalie interference, for offside, uh, for a missed game stoppage, the referees are watching the video. Toronto might ask them some questions because there might be context that's missing. They need that context. But ultimately, Toronto makes those calls. Okay, but there is, it, but there is a kind of a conversation going on sometimes. With there's the a conversation if Toronto needs more information. For example, they might say, that bump at the net on the goaltender, what did you see? Because, you know, uh, we don't have a good camera angle. Were you yelling at him to stay out of the crease? Did he know he was in the crease? And the referee might say, yes, I was yelling at him. I was yelling his name. I was telling him he was in the crease. I know he heard me. They, and they might say, okay, great. That adds context to our decision here. Um, but ultimately, Toronto makes the final determination on those calls. So when a, a referee points goal, coach challenges it, and it gets overturned, the coach shouldn't be yelling at the referee because it was taken out of the referee's hands. It was Toronto made that call. Gotcha. Okay, interesting. Yeah. When when the referee makes the call, though, is when they call a five-minute major. You call a five-minute major that goes automatically to review. And yeah. it, can be it can be reduced to two minutes or it can be rescinded totally. That's still in the hands of the referee. Oh, okay. So that's not Toronto at all. That's still handled. It's not Toronto. Just... Toronto has a little bit of input. They, they help you. They get you the angles you need. But ultimately, the referee on the ice decides, in my judgment, I'm keeping that a five-minute major. Or after seeing it a second, third, fourth time, yeah, it might have been a bit of overreaction on my part. I'm going to reduce it to two minutes. Or I was completely wrong, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescind it completely. Wow. And so the it's same... almost like the inverse of a goal challenge where Toronto correct. is the one providing context. Okay. Correct, correct. And the same thing applies with the double minor for high sticking. Okay. It's the referees that can uh, rescind it to zero. They, you can't go two because uh, a four-minute double minor is only assessed when there's injury. Right. So there's no, there's no provision for a two-minute minor for injury. So they call four minutes. They go and look at it if they want. It doesn't. They don't have to, but... If the team's upset, it makes good sense that, hey, maybe I missed something. So you go and look at it. And that can be rescinded to zero for uh, – it might have been the puck that hit him. It wasn't the stick. It might have been his own teammate's stick. Right. Or it might have been a, a legit follow-through that from their right. angle, it looked like high stick them, but it was a legit follow-through. They can look at it. Those, those reviews for double minors usually go pretty quick. The referee looks at it and just confirms, yeah, it's a high stick. Or he goes, oh, wow. From that angle, I can see – it was the puck that got him or it was his own teammate. The, the biggest one, it's usually his own teammate. You know, you get two, two guys in front of the net and they're boxing each other out and the stick comes around and it turns out it was his own teammate that hits him. And that that's usually a pretty quick fix. And, and I'm, I'm glad they had it. We, we didn't have it in my day. Like right. I, I retired in 18 and I think of all the high sticks I got wrong that this would have been such a godsend. Oh, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, wow. Um. You know, something I've noticed that it seems like the refs that talk to the players and the benches more, uh, it seems like they keep things in line a little better as opposed to the ones that are a little bit more standoffish. Um, do you think that's true? And and how did you balance that and keep a productive dialogue going with the players and the benches? Well, I, I definitely think it's true. Teams like communication. Um, all they want to do is be heard sometimes. You know, I, I always say, like, where would you draw the line when someone's yelling at you? Well, I wouldn't give them a penalty right away. I would skate over after, you know, 10 seconds, I would say, hey, I heard you the first three times. <laughs> and it's kind of their, you know, I'm kind of giving them the message that I've heard you three times. I don't want to hear you a fourth time. And usually they like, okay, cool. He heard me. So I had my input and I'm good. Um, it's not easy to to learn how to deal and communicate. With, it's, you've got to be there. It's like on the job training. 
Yeah. And I think the, for the most part, the better communicators are the more veteran officials because mm -hmm. they've been doing it longer. And when you come in the league, it can be very intimidating. I mean, most guys who come in the league, I'm not saying they idolize the players and coaches, but they've been watching them on TV for years. And now all of a sudden you're on the ice with these guys and you're paid to be in charge. You're paid to do your job and, and meet out justice and penalties when need be. So that can be intimidating. And I just think it takes, it just takes some seasoning. It takes a couple of years of, of doing it and you become more comfortable at it. And especially if you work with, if you're a young guy, a rookie, and you're working with Wes McCauley, for example, or with Kelly Sutherland or Dan O'Rourke, um, you see what those guys do. You see how they interact. And they go to the, and they're really good at, you don't want to go to the bench every time a coach calls you over because mm -hmm. then he's kind of using you. Whereas if you say, I'm going to go to the bench when it makes my job easier, when, when I can diffuse something and I'm going to go to the bench and pass a message that's going to make my job easier and make the game flow smoother. And that's the time to do it. And that's between periods. You can explain to your, your younger partner you're working with. This is why I went to the bench and this is what I did. It. And it's just it, no different than pairing a, you know, a young defenseman with a veteran defenseman and, they talk on the bench. They talk during practice, and that's how you gain experience. Right, that makes sense. What rule changes would you like to see for the betterment of the game or the safety of the players? Huh, well, I personally, I, I, I believe they're already talking about it. I don't like the regrouping on the in the overtime, three on three, uh, when they you know pass the puck back to their goaltender, make a line change, come off when that. Three on three first started. I was still on the ice, and it was it was so entertaining. It was just running gun hockey, end to end, constant shots. Guys would get caught deep, breakaways both ways, and now it's become a game strictly a possession game. And I'd like to see it go back to the you know, just hell bent for leather and uh, going at it. So I think if you stop prevented people from going back over center ice once they've crossed the attacking blue line. Um, I'm not saying a penalty, maybe. Uh, a face-off in their own end with no line change permitted, something like that, because you don't want to lose possession of the puck, so it would prevent you from going back over center ice. That would be a good one. Uh, the other one I'd love to see, and um, I managed to get it passed, I do some uh, player safety for the um, Federal Hockey League, which is a single-A pro hockey league based on the eastern seaboard. And uh, a play, for example, like Spearing, mm -hmm. where... Um, you can give a double minor for spearing only if there's no contact. It's for it's a, it's a, an attempted spear, but if there's contact, you've got to go five minutes. And too often, I'll see a play, for example, in front of the net, where the defenseman and the forward are battling for, for position, and the defenseman takes the tip of his stick blade, puts it on the calf of the player, shoves him. The player goes up in the air, falls down, and what's usually called either slashing or tripping. Because it's not worth five minutes. Right. And a game misconduct or a match penalty. But if we had the ability to call four minutes there and call it spearing, or in a scrum where you you'll see a guy have one hand on the stick and he pokes a guy in the stomach. It's not violent. It's just sort of a a get away from me type thing. Yeah. And the referee sees it, acknowledges it, and gives him two for slashing. And the player gets the stick in the stomach, goes, Well, he speared me. Yeah, And the referee goes, yeah, but he didn't two-hand run you through. You didn't get your spleen, so I'm not calling five-in-game. And I don't, I don't begrudge them at all because it's not worth five-in-game. 
but it'd be great if we had the ability to call four minutes with with contact. So you and, like you'd like to see more just like egregious penalties being able to call double minor or more of them essentially. Not egregious. Like, I, I'm good with the five in game or a match penalty if it's egregious. Okay. But I'm saying have the ability to call something that's really minor, but it actually is the tip of the stick. It's a spear. Right. To be able to give four minutes for that, and guys will stop doing it. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, something I've always wondered is that when there's new rules or new standards for calling penalties that are added to the game, um, it always seems like at the beginning of the season that they get called very aggressively, and then it seems to kind of peter out as the season goes on. Uh, is there a reason for that? Is it old habits sinking in, or does the NHL kind of ask for an adjustment like they overcorrected initially? I think it's – I think it's uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, obviously, let's take the cross-checking. Uh, two years ago, three years ago in the playoffs – there was a lot of cross checks that that drew a lot of attention that were uncalled a couple of injuries arose from it and the league realized you know we need to we need to tighten up on on cross checks for too long we've been allowing the little the quick little shot in the back of the yeah. pants the guy going down but i mean if you're the guy getting that cross check a it can hurt and b if you're not expecting it you can go ahead first in the boards or 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 whatever so it became a point of emphasis we didn't change the rule. We just changed how it was going to be enforced. We went back to the literal interpretation in the, in the rule book and guys, the referees came out, you know, just banging it, like calling the cross checks, calling the cross checks. Was there a bit of overreaction? Yeah. Because you don't want to be the guy that lets the whole staff down. They, they told the league, they told the players, told the coach, told the GMs, we are going to call cross checking. So don't do it. And you don't want to be the referee that goes out and doesn't call the cross-checking because then you make the rest of the guys that are calling it look bad. Yeah. Right? So you've got to maintain that standard. And might that standard be a bit high? Possibly. But the effect it has is the players stop doing it. Right. So the referees, as the season goes on, become more comfortable with the standard and they'll see something they might have called in preseason games and go, I called that in preseason, but it's really not a penalty. It's not like they're backing off. They're just realizing they've adjusted to where the standard should be. Okay. And they're not calling maybe the soft ones they would have called in preseason. But the second thing is the players are now adjusting and going, I can't do that because I'm about to do it and I got called for it in preseason. So I'm learning now. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wrap the guy. I'm going to do something else, but I'm not going to cross-check him. So I think, I think it's a give and take. It's the referees – becoming more comfortable with their standard and the players and coaches who are tired of killing penalties, telling their team to smarten up, the referees are going to call it. Don't do it. Gotcha. That makes sense. Why isn't diving or embellishment called more? It seems like it's frequently only called in tandem with another penalty. Yeah. How come? Yeah. Well, I understand your frustration. And as a casual fan, if I'm just watching a game, I couldn't agree with you more. However, being on the ice and seeing a guy potentially embellish something and calling a standalone embellishment, you're really sticking your neck out there and saying that you're basically saying that guy's a cheater because he's trying to embellish. And that's easier said than done because you've got to be 100% certain that there was no foul that occurred with him that caused him to go that way. I mean, the worst thing you could do would be, I saw a game last year and this wasn't the NHL. This was, this was in the minors. 
where a player reached to try and lift the guy's stick and got him right in the face. And the referee threw his arm up and called the standalone embellishment for the guy who grabbed his face. No high-sticking penalty. So the guy skates to the penalty box, spitting blood. He's sitting in the penalty box in a towel, <laughs> dripping, probably needed four or five stitches, and the referee still refused to acknowledge that he wasn't embellishing. Meanwhile, the guy got away with a double minor for high-sticking. So you have to be 100% sure that this guy embellished. And not many players... I mean, I'm saying this quite honestly. Not many players outright embellish. Something usually happens for them to make it look worse. A mm-hmm. uh, slight hook, a slight tug, and they'll go down. But honestly, if the stick was not on the begin with, they wouldn't have gone down. So that's why I think you, more often than not, you'll see it called both ways. You'll acknowledge the infraction, and you'll then say to the player, let me do my job. You didn't have to make it look so bad. And they end up getting two and two. That, that, that's definitely no i totally agree with that because yeah it's very risky it's better to have just either a split of the embellishment and the well whether they tripped him speared him or whatever it is then a guy go get a penalty and you know their mouth's full of blood um, exactly yeah. and, yeah, and not, not 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 to say there hasn't been some great standalone embellishment calls this year and i think those are great but You've got to be a hundred percent sure. Those risky. aren't pen. Those aren't penalties where you can be. I'm seventy five percent sure he's embellishing because if you call that and then the shorter replay and go, we'll take the embellishment or whatever. But this is what caused it, you know. So yeah, it's a bad look. It's it's a fine balance. Yeah, I get that. So is there are makeup calls a natural thing uh, for us to do in the NHL? Like if let's say the ref calls a penalty and then he looks back and says, I don't know, maybe that shouldn't have been a penalty and you couldn't call that back. And you say maybe later, like, you know, I'll balance that out and do something equal equivalent to the other team or that it refs don't do that. I mean, I think back going way back years ago when we had one camera at center ice and you could, you could manage a hockey game. It doesn't happen today. There's such, and I don't mean this negatively, but the micromanagement, uh, the officials is you wouldn't believe it. Like there's somebody in Toronto who watches every single game. If there's 10 games going on at once, there's 10 different stations in the situation room. And there's somebody assigned to that one game and they they're, they're, they're referred to as loggers and they log each penalty, each missed call. So for example, if you were to make a really soft hooking call that wasn't a hook, that would be logged as this was a soft call. It wasn't a trip. You made a mistake. And then two minutes later, you decided, well, I'm going to make up for that and call another soft tripping call. Well, then now you're over two on that score sheet. So when the logger then completes the game and has his final notes, those get forwarded to the referee director officiating. And they're not the whole game. They're just clips. So there's no frame of reference. Well, this was a makeup call for the first one. No, in the ref- director officiating's mind, he made a bad call. Oh wow, he made another bad call, mm. and there's no justifying that. So I've made bad calls in my career, and you kind of know it. You you kind of know it as soon as that arm goes up, and you've got to live with it. And when a player's yelling at you or whatever, what I would say to him is, listen. 
It wasn't the strongest call I've ever made. I'm not going to even it up, but I promise you I'll do better. And that's what you got to, you just got to, you got to commit to be better. And if you made one bad call, that's the only bad call I'm going to make. That's what I'm telling myself in my head. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it worse by making a second bad call just to make things even. Not going to happen. So with that, does, does the ref end up getting that scorecard from the yeah. games? Do you, so, do you get that every game? Is that in, Every is game. It? Every game. And, you know, I mischaracterize it. It's not a scorecard per se. Okay. That's just my terminology. Sure, but sure. Yes. Uh, every official referee linesman, they get home after the game, the next morning, the next day, has their game available to them. They pull it up, and then down the right side, it's already clipped for them. They don't have to, you know, go fast forward and find what they're looking for. They can go down every penalty, every offside, every face-off, and you can use filters. You just want to look at your face-offs if you're a linesman. You can apply just face-offs, and you can watch all your face-offs all game long. Uh, if you're a referee, you can put just penalties, and you go down, and you click on the penalties you called. And if there was something irregular about it, there'll be a note beside it that was written by the logger in Toronto as to what they thought about this call. Wow. That's so, a really useful tool. How long have they been doing that for? They've been doing that now since about 2016. Okay. And that's just one more thing. When when people on Twitter say to me, the referees have no accountability. Well, to me, that's pretty accountable. Yeah. They, they have that made available to them. Um, it's being shared with hockey operations. It's being shared with the director of officiating. It's being shared with all the officiating managers, mentors, coaches. So there's no hiding from making bad calls. Um, and then they have... They have supervisors. So I talked about uh, in the situation room, there's a retired official. Yeah. Well, they do two or three days and they go back out on the road and they actually are in the press box supervising hockey games. And they come down after the game and they complete debrief for all four officials. These were the good calls you made. These were the calls I wish you would have made. These were the ones I wish you wouldn't have made. Um, all facets of the game. And you get that probably 40% of all the games you work. You have somebody live debriefing you. Um, you have a mid-season, you have a mid-season letter that comes out that lists your strong points, things you need to work on. And then uh, at the end of the season, like two-thirds of the staff work playoffs, one-third goes home. Um, actually more than one-third. So, you know, you're losing a lot of bonus money there. That's People based on see, that's based on your, your ranking. Based, your based on your ranking, and um, you never get to see. They don't list you one through 35 for us, one through 35. There's an internal ranking though. Right. That the boss has. And you know, if you're so um, up until last year, uh, 20 referees and 20 linesmen worked in the first round. There's 35 of each. So 20 work, 15 go home. Right. Close to almost half, you know, like 60%. Let's say. Um, you know, if you're not getting, if you don't get playoffs, you're not ranked in the top 20. Yeah. Wow. And, and it doesn't mean you're a terrible official. Um, there's lots of reasons for not being that top 20. You could be, you could be a young guy and you just can't break that top 20. You're doing a great job, but there's 20 guys doing just as good a job. who have been there longer. Right. You've got guys that have been injured. They've missed half a season. So they come back and they just don't break the guy, the guys that are working well. It's sort of like a hockey lineup, right? A guy comes out of the lineup injured and his replacement's playing well, scoring goals. Doesn't mean you're not good, but he sort of took your place. Um, and then there's just guys that maybe, like, for example, if you're retiring, you don't work playoffs the year you're retiring. You leave with about a week to go in the season. So 
That doesn't mean you're not ranked top 20, but you're not getting playoffs. So there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why they don't. Well, for one thing, it's twofold. If you're retiring, they don't want you working that final week of the season where could be every game means a playoff spot. And just the perception is that while you're retiring, you know, maybe your head's not in it, but, but even bigger than that, you love to have your final game. You have your family at your final game. You know, it's your final game. The teams know it's your final game. If you're working playoffs, you never know when your final game is. Right. Series might go seven games. You might be scheduled to work game six. Series ends in four, and you're done. Right. So, yeah, in your final season, you don't work, work playoffs. But back to my original uh, point is that referees, are, referees and linesmen are held accountable. They really are. Just because it's not made public, they're still held accountable. Wow. That's cool. Um, are there any rules you believe need more specific wording so there's no confusion? Yes. The the one I feel needs more specific wording, we've had a lot of them in the last couple of years, is where a player precedes the puck across the blue line and with his feet, and the puck is still outside the zone. He, for example, skating in backwards with the puck. Yeah. Um, the rule says that the player has to have possession and control of the puck before his skates break the blue line, the plane of the blue line. What it doesn't say, which I believe we take for granted that should be unsaid, but once you open it up to social media, nothing's unsaid. Yeah. It should it should also say and must maintain possession and control once he crosses the blue line. It doesn't say that in the rule book. I'll give you the example. If you were skating backwards, by yourself, possession and control, and your feet cross the blue line. But then once your feet cross the blue line, you make a pass to a teammate. And you've never touched that puck in the attacking side of the blue line. You're not, you've never been in possession of the puck in the attacking zone. That's offside. Are you guys Wait, following me here? Yeah, yeah no, yeah. I, 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 I'm yeah, just trying and, to picture and, it in my and, head. In fact, so, there was... There was one specific thing, and I think in the playoffs last it year, it happened I with Lafreniere. Actually, Lafreniere had one. Lafreniere had one, one earlier this one, year. I think there was one in the playoffs last year with Kale McCarr, and they said he didn't have possession, even though because when he crossed the line, the puck wasn't physically on his stick. True, but his feet but, were still his feet were still in, in in the neutral zone. So people's mind exploded on that one. That's more of a delayed yeah. offside. Okay, it's more of a delayed offside. The one okay. I'm talking about. There was one last year, Connor McDavid in overtime. He makes this move at the blue line. He keeps the puck outside the blue line. His feet go in the blue line, uh, go across the blue line. So now he's in the zone before the puck. Yeah. But he's in possession and control, which is which is legal. But he still needs to bring that puck across the blue line, blue line before he gets and touch it before it gets off his stick. Well, what he does is he passes it to himself basically. But it leaves his stick while the puck is still in the neutral zone. It enters the attacking zone. It's incumbent upon him to put his stick back on that puck. He tries, but the guy lifts his stick. He never touches the puck inside the attacking uh, zone. Okay. He meant to touch it, and that would have been fine. He had possession and control outside the blue line. He has possession and control inside the blue line. But he never had possession and control inside the blue line because the guy lifted his stick. And then he uh, I believe I I believe Drysaddle came in, picked the puck up, right, passed it over to McDavid. McDavid scored. 
Right, but that wouldn't count. Like, that makes sense. But but people arguing with me on Twitter said the rule only says he needs to have possession and control in the neutral zone before his feet cross the blue line. Right. And I think we could add an addendum saying, and he must maintain possession and control uh, as the puck crosses the blue line. Gotcha. And is and and is possession defined? It's not just he doesn't literally have to have the puck tape on no. his stick, right? It's just as long doesn't as he's. He's control in control of, of the of possession the and control are quite different, actually. Possession is the last person to play the puck. Oh, so okay. when I ice the puck until somebody else touches it, I'm still in possession of it. Oh, oh wow! But I'm not in control. I'm not in control of it. So control is actually controlling the puck. Possession is the last person to have touched it. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it does. I've just yeah. never, I just never, I was not aware of that wrinkle. That's interesting. Yeah. And then to have control, you don't necessarily need to be touching it because as you stick handle, there's going to be microseconds where it's not being touched, but you're still in control of the puck. You're still propelling the puck. Right. Um, and that's how I interpret it too. But right. I wasn't and then sure. people ask me about, so if you're propelling the puck and you lose the puck, but it's between your legs and you look down, there's no one else, you're still in possession of it. But it's not a control of it. Because no one else has touched it. But if you go to play the puck and you've never touched it with your stick, just because it's between your legs doesn't mean you're in possession. You need to have control of the puck before you can First. have possession. So you could technically then, you could be skating backwards, receive a pass, have possession of it, and then have it go into the zone with your feet. Not And then the puck could go into the zone with your feet. And as long as you're the first one to touch it, you'd still be onside then. Yes. Yes. Oh. Is there, yeah. let's say... Um, cause I know th there's a gray area. Let's say you're handling the puck, uh, crossing the blue line. Let's say the puck's like bouncing all over the place. Is there then maybe technically speaking? That, that is judgment. That's a judgment call. The linesman <laughs> has to react. Or if it goes to a coach's challenge, the people in the video room have to determine, is that possession and control? And normally what you would say is if you had a delayed penalty on someone, you wouldn't blow a whistle till they had possession and control would you blow the whistle there? Would you consider they had possession and control? For example, a goalie makes a save, you're not blowing the whistle for a delayed penalty because he, goalie has not possession and control. It just hits him. Team can keep trying to score, correct? Uh, right. It's not till the defenseman actually touches the puck that you blow the whistle. So the same principles kind of apply to the blue line. Would you blow the whistle for a delayed penalty? Did you think he had possession and control or was it bouncing over his stick? Wow. That's that's very enlightening because of that. I've 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 heard a lot of arguments about that. I've seen a lot of plays, and I've even heard it discussed by broadcasters who are not saying what you're saying. They don't know it obviously as well as you do. Correct. And now I have a much firmer understanding. So thank you for breaking that and down. If you want to go even further, uh, you guys got the time. We talk about sure, the Macar, yeah. We talk about the Macar one. Yeah. People were losing their mind because they were saying he was in possession and control of the puck when he brought it into his own. Mm -hmm. They're partly right. He was in possession and control of the puck. But the second he propelled it, when he broke that plane, he was still in possession of that puck, but he wasn't in control of it. He wasn't touching it. And his feet were outside the blue line. So he wasn't offside. So I ask people, I say, what would be the difference if the puck ended up just ended up there? It was just sitting stopped. He decided to stop at the blue line and hover his stick over top of that puck. You wouldn't call offside. He's not touching it. Right. Yeah. Right. And, but people just couldn't figure that out. 
what he did, he propelled it. And I'm not even sure it was on purpose, but he's, he's so good. It, it definitely could have been on purpose. But whether it was on purpose or not, the second that puck broke the plane of the blue line, the, the uh, inside edge, from the time it broke that inside edge, his stick did not touch that puck until his teammate had tagged up. There is zero difference between that and if he'd have taken that puck and dumped it into the corner. And no one would have had a problem with that. Right. That would have yeah. been that would have been a micro delayed offside. The linesman would have thrown his arm in the air. His teammate would have tagged up, and the arm would have come back down. That's the exact same play. The difference right. is he only dumped he only dumped it six inches. Right. But it's really it's really the same play. Wow, that's interesting. I, mean, I never I never considered that before. Yeah, I, I, man, I have a much firmer understanding of this rule now. <laughs> yeah. But you're it's, right. It's, it, it would help if the rule book gave a little more clarity to that specific language. So this wasn't. There's a lot know. of nuance. However, the NHL does a great job on NHL.com. They have a video rule book. Okay. And, and they have links to pretty much every rule with a four to eight minute video on every rule. And they cover those offside calls. So even mm-hmm. though maybe I think maybe the wording could be clarified a little bit in the rule book, if you watch those video links on NHL.com video rule book, they explain goal interference. They explain those kind of offside calls, and they do they, they do a great job of doing it. Cool. I'll have to check that out. I've never actually looked at that. Um, there's something I, I'm very curious about, uh, you know, because there's been a lot of focus in the game about you know making it safer and taking out the dangerous plays. Um, one thing that I see happen a lot, it doesn't, it's not considered a serious penalty a lot of times, is slew footing. I see it happen a lot. Sometimes it does get called. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. A lot of times I don't even see supplemental discipline for it. And to me, you know, I played hockey for a while. Supremely dangerous play can really yeah. injure a guy. Is there yeah. any reason why that isn't considered to be as serious as checking from behind boarding and high hits and those type of things? Well, here's what the directive came out a few years ago. Uh, there was a, a real concerted effort to catch those sneaky plays, sticking mm-hmm. the foot out, especially from behind. You come in from behind. Um but what there's there, there's a difference between tripping and slew footing. Mm-hmm. When you come in and stick your foot out and hit the guy in the back of the skate, that's tripping. If he falls really hard and injures himself, then you might see them call a match penalty for attempt to injure. Mm-hmm. Difference though between that and slew footing is slew footing is an intentional act where you put your foot behind him and you use your arm or yes. upper body on the torso and leverage him down. That's not something that could be considered accidental. There are trips where you stick your foot up from behind where the player's turning on you and you just reaction and you trip him from behind. Yeah. That is reckless, but I wouldn't call it malicious. Right. Whereas a slew foot is an intentional act that has to incorporate the use of the arm and the upper body. Okay. And that's a match penalty every time. If you see the guy do it, if you acknowledge he does it, then it's called a match penalty. That that's not called tripping. And is it called as consistently as you, the fan, would like? Probably not. But it's in a way better place than it was five years ago, ten years ago. And I think it's going to continue to be called more often and more severely. Good. I'd like to. I'd like to see that. I really would. And that makes sense. The difference between the two, because I mean, playing hockey too. I've noticed sometimes you just. You stick out yeah. your leg because you don't want somebody to get by you, and it's an instinct. You don't even you're not even trying to trip them. It's just like, hey, yeah. this is the part of my body I can make contact with to 
to get in front of them. There was one called last night in the Avalanche uh, Anaheim game. Uh, Colton, I believe, I believe it was Colton, came in into the corner and he was just coming in hard and he left his foot out and got the guy in the back, got him down. He called two for tripping. Uh, player of safety fined him $5,000 this morning. Wow. For a, da- for a dangerous trip. So, wow. Uh, and that's the great thing about player safety is that if you've never refereed the game at the NHL level, you have no idea how fast things happen out there. Yeah. And you're trying to you're trying to see everything, and sometimes by trying to see everything, you see nothing, and something will jump out at you, and you've got to kind of put two and two together, and go, that's what I think I saw, and ninety nine percent of the time these guys are right. They're so good at it, but you're just struggling sometimes to not miss a call, yeah, because there's so much going on all at once. The beauty of player safety is they can go, hey, I understand why you only called two minutes. Makes sense, but we have the benefit of watching it 15 times in slow mo from a bunch of different angles, and we're going to find or we're going to suspend the player, and that's why we're here. And don't take it personally, because I used to that used to bother me. I'd call a two minute minor, or I'd call nothing, and then next day I'm reading player safety just suspended the guy for a game, <laughs> and yeah, it's it, it's it's a really it's a tough feeling, it's a sinking feeling in your stomach. But George Paros does a great job of explaining to the guys when he goes to training camp. He goes, don't take it personally. He goes, we have more tools available to us than you guys do. And that's why we're here. Gotcha. It's long been a narrative that the playoffs are officiated differently than the regular season with more being let go. Is this intentional or do you think it's just the psychological impact of not wanting to overly impact the game? I think a lot of it is the public's narrative and perception. Are the are the penalties? Um, I went through this last year on, on Twitter. Penalties per game in the playoffs, minor penalties, are higher per game than regular season, especially in the first round. Mm-hmm. It's the type of penalties that are called, and fans aren't like fans say, "Oh my God, playoff hockey! It's so good. I wish the whole season was like that." Well, there's a reason why it isn't because players can't play at that level for 82 games. Right. It it is hair on fire. And I didn't realize that until my first playoff game. I did seven years of not doing playoffs back in the one man system because there was there was no room for me. If they moved me in, they meant moving somebody out. So they would assign me standby. And I'd go to the games and I'd stand down by the glass and I'd go, Wow, this is the fastest hockey I've ever seen in my life. I've seen it on TV, but I've never seen it live like this at ice level. And then when I finally got my first playoff assignment, I thought I was ready to work playoffs. I thought I was, I knew what to expect. And it was even 10 times faster than it had been when I was on the other side of the glass. It was, it was hair on fire, you know, pedal to the metal, every, every shift. There's, there's no taking any shift off. Players know that the coaches know that. And the coaches, if you ever watch those, things we do on ESPN where you see the coaches giving the team the last minute pep talk before they go on the ice. When it comes to playoffs, it's boys don't take penalties because regular season games are six, five, four, three. A lot of playoff games are one, nothing two one and team's going to score on a power play. It's going to kill us. So don't take penalties. So regular season players take penalties, uh, lazy penalties. They take um, retaliation penalties. You don't see those in, in playoffs. You don't see a guy retaliating. You don't see a guy taking a lazy penalty. What you see in playoffs is desperation. Mm-hmm. 
you're beat. The guy's going to score. That's when I take the penalty. So to your question, do referees officiate differently? I think the players play differently mm-hmm. in the playoffs. And sometimes you look at a game where a referee will go out and he'll establish a certain standard on, on hooking. And you might say, well, that was soft or whatever, but it's not necessarily soft. It, it meets the criteria, but he might be trying to establish a standard saying, we're not going to allow that this game. When you get late into a game and you see a, pay, a play that's, that's maybe on edge and you go, well, I saw that called early in the game two games ago. It's like he might have been trying to establish a standard. With four minutes to go, he's not establishing anything. Mm-hmm. And it didn't cross the line into being something that rose to the level of being a penalty. So there's no need to call it. The, the, I mean, but going back to what I said earlier, we're told, especially in playoffs, there's a supervisor assigned to all seven games. So even though the referees come and go, it's a different crew every night, it'll be the same supervisor for all seven games. So game three, new set of officials come in. They have a pre-lunch meeting, which lasts about an hour. Supervisor shows them video. He tells them what's happened in these games. And he reinforces, if it's a penalty, guys, we have to call it. But make sure it's a penalty. Don't call something soft. Don't call something because you think you think maybe you thought you saw him do this. No, you have to be 100% sure that it's a penalty. And if it is, I'll support you and I'll defend you to the coach, the GM, that anyone's mad that we told you to call the penalty because you know what the standard is and it's got to be fair for both teams. They tell the coaches that. There's a standard. We tell the referees, if it meets that standard, call the penalty. But if you're not 100% sure, I don't want you guessing. Right. Because I'd rather, I, I, I personally, if I was supervising, I could live with a missed call versus a phantom call where a team gets scored on the power play and it wasn't a penalty. Gotcha. All, you, those, you on that side. those are tough to defend. Yeah. Because the GM's coming and he's saying, why did he make this call? And you don't really have a leg to stand on because it's not a penalty. So he must have had a poor angle on it or he must have guessed. Whereas if he comes to you and goes, why didn't he call this? You can go, listen, he's called penalties all night. He called the penalty in overtime. He's not afraid to call a penalty, but from where he was standing, he just didn't have a good angle on it and he wasn't going to guess. And we don't want guys guessing. That makes sense. Yeah, I get that. Um, on those calls that are, uh, you know, more marginal, kind of 50, 50, does a, does a player's reputation impact anything in there? Like would a, you know, a lady, a perennial lady Bing, you know, candidate would, would they be more likely to get the benefit of the doubt versus a guy like say Tom Wilson, you know, is it, does that play into it at all? Not really. Um, a penalty is a penalty. And to say to the other team, I didn't call that penalty because this guy has a good reputation. And they're going, well, we don't care about his reputation. We deserve the power play there. Right. Um, so, no, you want to be right. You just want to be right. You, you want to be perfect. And it's never going to happen. You strive for that perfection. You're never going to have it. But I think if you know, I mean, honestly, in the heat of the action, especially come playoffs, sometimes you're even unaware of who committed the infraction. You just right. see it and you raise your arm and go, oh, wow, that was Wayne Gretzky. right right, you just call um i think where a reputation might come in would be how much how much abuse you might take from someone Mm. if you got a guy that's you know just like a prince of a person 
who's treated you with respect your whole career and he's yelling, he's mad about something. You might be saying to yourself, maybe he's right. <laughs> maybe he's right because he's never given me a hard time. Whereas a guy that maybe gives it to you every game. Yeah. Might, he might have a shorter leash if he steps over the line, but you, you just really, you can't let personalities factor into your decisions. You've got a job to do. You've got to rise above that. And, and you can't, you can't say a guy has this reputation or, or does not have reputation because that's not really in the rule book. You've, you've got to go out there and just, you're the guy that has to keep the integrity of, of the hockey game. And you just got to go out there and do your job. That's, that's what they pay you to do. Ultimately, just do your job, keep the game fair, keep the game safe. Sure. I, I guess and that's got to be tough too, because obviously there is, like you said, you're never going to be perfect. There's a human element involved here too. Yep. Why do reps sometimes uh, not allow two guys who want to fight square off? Like I, I get that, say there's a guy that's 5'11", and there's a, a guy that's 6'7", you're not you're not exactly going to want him to fight in that, but there are some times where they are somewhat equal and the refs kind of break it up. So the directive to linesmen is, and I'm not, it's not a hard and fast uh, 100% quote, but they're told if you can break up the fight safely, before it starts, get in there and break it up. So they don't want a guy going in by himself and stopping it. You hold one guy's arm, the other guy sucker punches him. But if they're able to stop a fight before it starts, that's kind of their mandate that they want them doing it. Now, that being said, you'll have a game where everybody knows that it's a, it's a payback game. It's, it's going to be a, there was bad blood between the teams or whatever. And it, might come out and there's a lot of lot of playing on edge, a lot of this, a lot of that. There's times there where you're trying, in, in your head, you're saying, I wish they'd just fight and get it over with. Right. Because we all know what's coming. Right? We all know what's coming. So trying to prevent them every time they get close to each other, it's almost like if they're both willing and you know what's happening, how about it, guys? Make sure nobody else gets involved. Step away. Have a fair fight, sit in the box, and then then the game will probably calm down afterwards. Do you think that fighting still has a place in the game and in the game's I, future? I think it does, but I think I think it has to be organic fighting. It has to be. I come across the blue line, you pop me in the head with an elbow, knock me down, I I jump up, we're gonna fight. I don't like the staged fighting. I don't like two guys coming out three minutes into a game where nothing's happened. There's no bad blood from the previous game. They talk, they rub shoulders, and puck drops, and they drop the gloves and fight. Now, it's entertaining. Don't get me wrong. But I think in today's society, where the appetite for that kind of thing is starting to wane a bit, you want to be able to balance it. You want to be able to say, hey, some fighting's good, but not all of fighting. And it's sort of a compromise. I, I, I think a compromise to be allowed to keep the good fighting if that makes sense to yeah. keep the organic fights to keep the it's it's sometimes i wish life mirrored the justice on the hockey rink you right. do something really cheap really dirty well someone's going to come and challenge you to a fight and you're going to have to answer the bell and i'm i'm fine with that but possibly as it evolves maybe give the referees the because the referees know what's going on they're not they're not just some casual guy off the street i mean they're on the they're on the ice they hear what's going on, the sights, the smells. They know what's 
what the pressure cooker is in that game. So if they see a fight where there was no need for that fight, that was just two guys trying to you know, justify their existence, then maybe allow the referees to give them 10-minute misconduct or to throw them out of the game maybe. Whereas when it's just a fight that's spontaneous, they go, hey, that was that was caused by your guy doing this and that guy came in and fought him and now we're good. Go sit down for five minutes and come back when you're done. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do you like replays being a part of the game now? Uh, do you think it takes anything away from the drama? And uh, kind of a side question to that. Are there things you'd like to be able to have reviewed or plays that you wish weren't challengeable that it currently are? Uh, well, I look back on my career and I still get night sweats sometimes and calls I missed or, <laughs> or calls I get wrong, you know, from 10 years ago, from 20 years ago. And I, I'm just going, wow, that, I still remember what a dark period that was for two or three days until I, you know, was able to get back on the ice and do another good game or something. Mm -hmm. um, because unlike a hockey player, you know, you ask probably any hockey players retired to go like, tell us about your best moments. And they'll go, oh, that goal I scored in overtime in the playoffs or this or that. I think for most referees, if you're honest with yourself, the ones that haunt you are the the big calls you missed or or the or the calls you you got wrong. And and I wish we would have had expanded replay when I when I was working. Um I can think of probably probably my biggest mistakes in my career could have been fixed by by instant replay. Uh having said that, I think we're in a good spot. I, I don't think I don't think we need to expand it any further. Um it's good. They might down the road, tweak the offside rule. I'm not sure uh, a player who's three centimeters offside and they buzz around the zone for 60 seconds before they score exactly. really has an really has an impact on that play. So that, I mean, the game wasn't designed for those tolerances. Yeah, it's a it's a game of flow of con continuity. That rule was brought in so we don't have Duchesne being nine feet offside and scoring a goal, and that's why the rule was brought in. Right. So how do you fix it? I don't know how you fix it because the video is available. So what do you say? Well, we're only going to review if it's three inches, if it's six inches, 12 inches. It's tough. I mean, maybe you could bring something in to say if the defensive team gains possession and control of the puck, then it negates any offside. Yeah, I'd like that. Yeah. You know, you, you could have something like that. Uh, I've, heard, I've heard people say if the defenseman backing up gives up the blue line, once he crosses the blue line, almost like in soccer. Yeah. Then mm -hmm. then there's no more blue line. You, yeah. So, you know, you got a guy breaking down the wing and as long as the defenseman crosses the blue line, then he can, he could be outside. If he receives that pass. I mean, I know that's really taken to the extreme, but there's all kinds of possibilities. I mean, you ask people in 1920, what the game would be like today in 2020, 2023, right. we'd blow their mind. Right. So who knows what the game is going to be in another 50 years. There's all kinds of changes we could make. Yeah, and I, and I really agree with you on that. I'm pretty happy with the way the reviews are, with the exception of offsides, because I think it's very rare that a lineman blows an offside call so badly that there's a real competitive advantage bestowed on a play. And there's a lot of what it should be good goals that are like, nope, I'm sorry, his skate was a half inch off. And I'm like, who cares? Come on. Yeah, and it does I, ruin some of the drama of the game, I think, when you're like, did was that offsides? Did we score, really? We got to wait and find out. Well, you know what? I mean... Linesmen miss one inch offside plays all night long. And that's yeah. no that's no knock on them. No, that's just the nature, the speed of the game. I mean, it's I mean, we're talking tolerances of of 
half an inch. I mean, it's, it's impossible to be perfect all night long. So how about maybe, um, put a thin line, like a goal line, a foot inside the blue line. Mm. And you can only challenge if the puck was offside at that line. Now people are going to say, well, you have the same issue. You're going to have just as long a review and all that. But the difference is linesmen don't miss one foot off sides. Right. They occasionally do, but far uh, less frequently than a half inch offside. Yeah. So you'll have far fewer reviews. Yeah, that makes sense. And the impact of being less than a foot offside, I don't like you just said, I don't think really has a huge bearing in the scoring of a goal. No, I don't think so it's, at all. It's it's more bureaucratic red tape saying, yeah. well, he was offside. Absolutely. It's like it's different if, say, the guy got a stretch pass for a breakaway and he got it offside. Would that – that would – There's a material advantage gained there. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. While yeah. a player was like a molecule offside – on yeah. a three on two, it's not well, really especially if especially if the guy was offside never figures in the play. Yeah, never, that's never, never, never never yeah he's not even a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hell well, the blue line itself. Well, don't you also have to figure out line. if he drew a player towards him? Although I, I guess if it's an already an inch off, it's it's not gonna really make a yeah, difference. Yeah, it's not, yeah. It's sure. like gonna react and it's different, but sure. Yeah. And that's where you bring in there's all a myriad of of what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. So maybe just if the defensive team gains position and control. Yeah, it's over, you yeah. know, but that's not going to mean people are going to go offside on purpose because, no. you know, if their team scores a goal, they're not going to take they're not going to take advantage of the rule and go outside and go. We'll just make sure they never gain possession and control or or right. hey, we'll give we'll give it to them so they get possession. And control. Then we'll steal it back and then we'll score a goal. I mean, people aren't going to do that. So. Um, how important is the skating ability for a ref since they have to be on the ice keeping up with NHL players versus how good they are in officiating the game? Massive. Skating is everything. Um, back in the one referee system, you had to be a really good forward skater, but they had the red line for two-line pass. So you never really had the stretch passes. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot more hooking and holding. There was no speed through the neutral zone, and you only had to skate forward. Because when the play changed direction, you turn and go the other way. Now in the two-referee system, most of the referees' hard skating is backwards. Because they follow the play up to the staying behind the, the deepest guy. So they're coming up the ice, going skating forward as the play goes away from them. Mm-hmm. But when that play turns around and comes at them full bore, they're in high gear skating backwards. And that's not an easy task. Uh, you look at any NHL defenseman when he's got Connor McDavid bearing down on him with dry saddle on the wing, you've got to be as good going backwards as those D men because you don't want to be the guy that, you know, picks Connor McDavid, uh, McDavid and prevents him getting a breakaway. So these guys got to be great skaters. They got to be great backwards skaters. And if you watch them in the corners, it's amazing that they don't get hit every play, oh. but they're able to cut and, and you move left or right duck and they're constantly moving. They're constantly moving. You watch a game tomorrow night, tonight. You watch those referees in the corners. They're really good at what they do. It is. I was just talking to a friend uh, for this interview, actually. He said, hey, ask him, how is it that refs don't get hit more often? They don't get injured very often. They're out there with these guys. And I, I said, yeah, I, I, it's a good question because I really don't know. It's amazing how you infrequently know, when, they do get hit by the puck. When referees get hit by the puck, nine times out of ten, they've either – they're in the wrong position 
or the players made a mistake. The players panicked and right. just turned and fired blindly because referees make a point of standing where the puck should not go. Yeah. You know, like like on, on a breakout, for example, I'm going to stand where if you fire the puck at me and I'm not here, it's going to hit the boards and go in the slot. And you don't want that. So there's no reason that puck should be hitting me. It should be rimming around behind me or it should be going in front of me or off the glass and out. So you hit me. I mean, it always cracks me up when they hit you and they tell you to you know, get out of the way. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know what? I'm wearing a striped jersey. Did you think I was going to matrix uh, matrix it and, you know, move? If I'd been wearing a, a sweater of the opposite team, that puck wouldn't have come within five feet of me. Right. But for some reason, you think you can just panic and fire it in my direction. I'm going to move. It doesn't happen that way. Do you think it might be a thing to reduce it down to one linesman and have two refs and one linesman instead of the four crew? I don't see a need. You don't uh, see a need? Okay. No, uh, the refs don't get in the way. Mm. I mean, they do, but I don't think I don't think having one guy out of position scrambling and trying to get to that other blue line mm. is any better than having a guy that's there at set who can jump up on the edge of the boards. He can move inside. His partner can cover for him. Um, no. I, I think you need the four guys out there. That makes sense. Okay. Um, Plus, as a referee, I don't want to break up a fight. Yeah, no, that's fair, too. That's a fair point. Uh, one last penalty question here. Uh, boarding seems to be a call that I find to be inconsistently called. Um, can you explain why that is and what you might like to see change to better protect players? Well, boarding, the standard for boarding is far different than in minor hockey. Mm-hmm. Uh, minor minor hockey, uh, college hockey, um, there's basically zero tolerance, and the onus is all on the player making the hit. Even if the even the guy getting hit turns, it's still the onus on the guy making the hit to let up to to not follow through, which is sometimes unfair, mm-hmm. quite frankly. But I understand it. We're talking kids. We're talking their safety, their you know their neck. So I have no problem with that. Professional hockey, you don't want players turning to draw penalties. It's a physical game. Um, you've got to be tough to play in the NHL. You've got to be tough to play in any pro league. And I don't mean fighting tough. I just mean strong and not afraid to be hit and yeah. give hits. Um, in the NHL, if a guy has his back turned to you, you can still you can still hit him as long as you don't project him violently into the boards. So if the guy is not prepared for it, his back is turned, you've seen his numbers, you're going to see boarding called. Mm-hmm. And if there's an injury to the face or to the head, it'll be five in game. If he pops right back up and he's fine, there's no visible injury, it'll probably be two minutes. Is that the best way to, to officiate or to have the rule? I don't know. I mean... I see other leagues where guys get tossed all the time on hits that aren't even really that bad. And the guy getting hits laughing at them going, ah, I drew that penalty and now my team has a power play. So, I mean, I think where it is, it's, it's a very tough penalty to call mm-hmm. because unless you're the guy getting hit, you really don't know how hard you, the guy's projected into the boards. Um, you don't want guys staying down to try and draw penalties. Um, we should call it based on the action, not the result. But that's easier said than done. Um, I think you'll see cases where I do love the fact that they can call boarding, give five-minute major, and keep the guy in the game. 
So if there's no injury, the referee can still acknowledge and say, I'm not throwing out, but I'm going to give you five because you were over the line. Right. And um, it might be inconsistent to the casual fan. That's not an insult to you guys. No, no, no. But I'm uh, just yeah. saying when you actually apply it, you're, you're in charge of applying it game in, game out. I think they do a fairly consistent job of, of calling boarding. Okay. I can see that. It is. It, I get how it is a diff- difficult penalty to call just because so much of it does seem determined on the outcome of it, which is kind of a weird yeah. thing to me because sometimes you see a brutal, what looks like a brutal intentional hit that doesn't injure him and there's not a call. And then there's one that right. looks looks like a fairly soft check, but the guy just went down awkwardly. And then he hits his chin on the board. Hits his chin on the board. And, and, and then he's, yep. he's tossed. And it's like, yep. that's what I mean about the inconsistency of it. You you're know, absolutely it, right. It, it seems you're, outcome you're, based. You're not wrong. Um, but it's easier said than done in, in, yeah. in practice. It's uh, yeah. it's a constant struggle to find the right balance sure. between calling the action versus calling the result. And it's, it's not, it's not black and white. Yeah, no, that's true. So we got two more questions here. Rangers questions. Uh, again, okay. thank you so much for coming on. We asked you before, uh, this interview to take a look at Will Cooley's goal that was called back for distinct kicking motion. Could yep. you walk us through the call there, the language of the refs? Uh, I'm sorry, the language of the rules and what might be done by the NHL to provide more consistency and clarity on what is allowed? Sure. I think, once again, if you go to NHL.com, video, link, video rulebook, they have a great segment on kicked, kicked pucks, uh, which should really help explain the rule. Um, I think we've come a long way. When I started, every puck off a of skate, 90% of them were no goal. And it was pretty easy. It was pretty consistent. It hit your skate. It's no goal, unless it was just a complete deflection. And then we evolved and said, you know, there's a lot of goals that are legit goals that we're taking away. And we brought in the word. Some people love it. Some people hate it. But distinct kicking motion. What is that? So we went from disallowing everything to allowing probably 75% of goals off a skate now. And a player is now allowed... If, if the puck is coming at me and I decide to turn my skate, just turn it, not propel the puck, just turn it so that when it hits my skate, it goes in the net, that's going to be a good goal. If I'm driving the net hard and I'm putting the brakes on and I'm sliding on my skates and the puck comes across and hits my skate into the net, that's going to be a good goal. The goals that get disallowed is when there is a pendulum-type motion from the foot that materially changes the direction of the puck. So in the case you're talking about, the puck was traveling east-west, and he moved his skate north-south and propelled that puck, even though it didn't take much propelling because it was a hard pass. It was only on his skate for like a microsecond, but they still deem that to being propelling it because his skate was moving in the opposite direction the puck was going. If it was that's still, best... though, it would it would be a good goal. I Say that one more time. If his skate uh, stopped before the puck got to it and then bounced True. in. Then if he had put the brakes on and turned his foot before the puck got to it, banked in off his skate, it would have been a good goal. Got it. I think the part of that one that really got the ire of Rangers fans and myself included was, I, I guess, the language of distinct kicking motion. And even, as you said, pendulum. Uh in our minds that all we all kind of understand what that looks like is somebody kicking their foot out like that. Whereas yep. 
he was going backwards and turning his foot. But um, as you clarified, I can see where how they arrived at that. Just personally, if you were on the ice, would you have called? Would, would, did you do you feel that that was the right call on that particular one? If I'd have been on the ice, I would have allowed that goal. Yeah. Having seen it in replay, I think I would have disallowed it. Okay. Which is exactly what happened. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm just curious how you felt about about that one. The I guess it is like the the sink kick motion does paint an image in in people's minds that I think it maybe, just means kick forward and you know like soccer. Every, and all that. Everybody pictures Charlie Brown trying to punt the football. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. No, there, there's more to it than that. But uh, as I've said in other situations, we're late years ahead of where we were back in the '90s, right. where pretty much every goal off a of skate was no goal. Right. Okay, cool. Uh, we got one last one for you. This one's a little uh, kind of a controversial one, at least it is uh, in conversations with fans around the league. Um, do you think that Jacob Truba throws questionable hits? Do I think? No. Do I okay. think everybody, do I think that the general public thinks? Yes. <laughs> um, I think he throws monster, monster big legal hits. And I'd say 99% of the hits I've seen him throw. I certainly would not want to be on the receiving end of, but he plays within the rules. If you don't like what he does, change the rules. Yeah. He, he uh, doesn't bring his elbow up. He doesn't pick the head. A lot of times he's bigger than the player. The player is down. He aims for the center core, but if I'm six inches taller, I'm going to get your, your chin. Mm -hmm. But he's not picking the head. His primary point of contact is the center core of the body. The head is you know um unfortunately just collateral damage and yeah. people will say well that's kind of cold to say i understand it's cold to say i i i don't want to see a player get hit in the head yeah but we need to change the rule then if, if people don't like that and if people don't want head contact we got to change the rule he plays in, in my opinion plays within the rules 99 percent of the time and if he was out on the ice when I'm out on the ice, I would certainly be aware of him being out there because I would be going nowhere near him. I'd be, just dumping, <laughs> I'd, be I'd be dumping Chase. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm surprised by how often a player is skating with his head down right, right in front we, of him. I'm I don't like, know what, who are you, it was. what are you doing? I don't know who it was, but when they played the Devils, a devil cut in right to the net, and in his head was year? no, no, no. This oh. was the like last week, I think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, week, and yeah. he cut to the net. Truba knocked him down, and it, but his head was down. Like, wh what are you doing? Like, I understand people are outcome based when it comes to like judgment, but yeah. it's well, like you can't have your head down that way. It. it I don't w wish a head injury on anyone, but you gotta. You gotta keep your head up. You should see how good and how uh, creative the guys I play with in beer league hockey. Because they have their head down all day. They have no worries of being hit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the minute you bring physical uh, contact into the game, you learn pretty quickly that you might have to sacrifice some creativity for just personal well-being. Yeah. That's actually my biggest complaint about playing defense in, in beer league hockey now is um, guys that are really shifty and are really good at, at, at toe-dragging the puck – I hate having to stick check them because when I played, when I played, you know, as a teenager, I was like, you can dangle all you want. I'm just going to roast you right down the middle. You're like, it's yep. fine. I'm, I'm going to light you up. Now yep. I can't do that anymore. And I'm, I'm stuck. I'm stuck 
you know, chase him with the stick, which is something that's weird to me is to see professional defensemen play that way when they could just take the body. I'm like, just what are you doing? Why are you why are you getting dangled by Jack Hughes right now? Like, just yeah. light him up right now. Which is, I think it's because Truba, as you can imagine, I agree with your opinion on Truba, by the way, but you don't see so many big open ice hits anymore. And I think because no. he does that, it draws the ire of a lot of fans just because it's not commonplace like it was like back when you started refing. Yeah. Well, I think too, I mean, you talk about why don't they just laid a body on Jack Hughes. It's not that easy. I mean, I played defense. <laughs> I played defense growing up too. I mean, that's why I play forward in beer league hockey now because there's no, I mean, there's no support. Nobody back checks. No. Um, you're, you're I'm pretty much. I know, I know from experience. Uh... You're like, I was just going to say goalies and defensemen, they have one job is to stop them and get the puck up to me at the far blue line. Yeah. Exactly. And, and um, but having said that, um, I play with a bunch of guys of varying skills, but we also have Pierre Turgeon and Milan Hayduk, um, guys like that that skate with us. And believe me, I've tried playing the body one-on-one with those guys yeah. with terrible, terrible results. <laughs> I have said in my head, one-on-one, I'm just going to ignore the puck. I'm just going to look at his chest. And obviously, I'm not an NHL-caliber defenseman, never have sure. been. Sure. But they literally made me look like I was on the Mighty Ducks uh, in the movie. Right, right. Uh, yeah. and they just, you know, it was almost like staged where they put me in a spin cycle and down I go as they go in on a breakaway. It's yeah. amazing. So I think even at the NHL level, some guys are very hesitant to play the body because they're afraid they're going to look stupid. Look stupid. Yeah, makes sense. I can I can imagine Turgeon being really good at doing that. And incidentally, I was very happy when he finally got into the hall. I was way too long coming. I looked at his... His career and his stats, I don't know what took him so long to get him into the hall. He's a great player. Both him and Milan, I think, could still play on an NHL power play. Oh, yeah? They're, they're in that good a shape, and they've still got wheels. I mean, wow. they, they are, they're good players. That's cool. Uh, well, once again, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really enlightening. I, I learned a lot. I hope our listeners are going to learn a lot and maybe have a, uh, a little more patience for the uh, the tough job that, that refs have to do in the league. So uh, thanks again. Which, for which is in an really hour. appreciate it. Again, yeah. yeah, thank you so which is in an hour. Yeah, thank you so yeah. much for coming on. We really appreciate it. My my pleasure. And uh I will have to listen uh, for your band. Are you uh, performing any uh, any gigs in New York City? Uh I'm actually in I actually live in Buffalo. Um Oh, but, in Buffalo, uh, okay. Yeah, my I I'll shout out my band for the for the listeners too. My band's name is Quaker Gun Club. Uh, we're on Spotify or Apple Music if you want to check it out. I'll check it out. Cool. Thank you much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave.